This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. Four years ago today, the day after Trump's inauguration, women took to the streets in what is still the largest single protest in U.S. history. The Women's March was a catalyst for women everywhere to engage in unprecedented levels of activism. And that included a record-setting number of women who would subsequently seek and be voted into office, including Vice President Harris. It was also a pivotal moment for EMILY's List, the political action committee with a mission to get more pro-choice Democratic women into office. Women reached out to them in droves, seeking the support and guidance of this uniquely potent organization as they bravely and successfully threw their hats into the ring. That transformative guidance they were seeking is now available to all of us thanks to today's guest, whether we're thinking about public service or stepping into new levels of leadership in our own lives. Stephanie Shriok is the president of Emily's List and co-author of a new book called Run to Win, Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing the World. Since Stephanie became president in 2010, Emily's List has helped elect record number of women to Congress and recruited and trained thousands of women to run for office. Under her leadership, they raised more than $300 million to support women candidates and are more than 5 million members strong. Called one of the absolute stars of American politics, Stephanie has also been named one of the 10 most powerful women in Washington by Elle magazine. And we couldn't be more thrilled to have her here on Women at Work today. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Laura, so much for having me today. So I have to start off. There's a lot going on in your world with Emily's List. A lot of women who have, you know, been doing important things. What made you take time out to write a book now? I just, like, why not squeeze that in? It's because, you know, women, we multitask on all kinds of stuff, right? So it's it really was a um, clear moment at Emily's List that we were seeing the surge of women who wanted to run for office and, and now to the tune of over 60,000 women who have signed up saying oh they want to run 60,000. Like it is a cultural change. And as we were going into the 2017-2018 cycle, uh, we were seeing these just amazing women and their stories were so powerful that we wanted to find a way to first share their stories. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, they were nurses and CIA agents and- <laughs> And moms. And moms and you name it. Uh, they were coming from all walks of life, a much more diverse set of, of experiences than we had seen at that number in the past. So that was the beginning of, we want folks to see the story because we wanted every woman to see herself as a potential candidate. And then as we were writing, we realized, you know, there are lessons here for every aspect of our society for women to rise up, um, whether it's in the business sector, in the private um, nonprofit sector, in politics. I mean, the thing is, leadership is leadership no matter where you are. You know, I, I'm glad you put it that way, because as I was reading 
through all of this really wise advice and the components of what it takes to decide to run for office, how to approach it, it all was resonating with me as really core management and business skills, as if being a candidate is like being an entrepreneur. How right or wrong am I? Oh, completely. I mean, I, you know, I've always talked about campaigns as like, here's the deal. You're, you're a candidate, you become the chairman or chairwoman of the board, I should say, uh, instantaneously, you may not actually have a board, you probably have a kitchen cabinet, uh, (laughs) and you are literally building a startup rapidly. Like it is exactly what it is. You are building a startup where you have to find seed funding and you have to hire staff and you need a plan. This all sounds like business, right? What's your marketing plan? How are you going to handle management? Uh, Who's going to do the accounting? Who's going to do the compliance? All of that is part of a campaign, which is a business. The odd thing about it is that there's this one day going out of business sale. (laughs) Right, there's one day to go to market. (laughs) That's right. And then it's done. Um, Unless there's a few hiccups on the back end, like a recount or something, you're usually done on election day. But I've always talked about it like that. And I've thought about it like that since I started uh, in in electoral politics and started being a campaign manager. It's like, this is literally a startup. Like, this is what we're doing every time, every cycle. So, you know, we talk about this a lot in business, that there are women who could be really great in business, but don't see themselves that way, never mind seeing themselves as public servants, candidates, leaders. Talk to me about how you saw yourself in this process. How did you step into politics? Well, I came into it like so many other women do, uh, is like I wanted to make a change on a specific issue. Now, I will fully admit I was that kid growing up that was like, what else can I get myself into? Like, oh my goodness, I it was the super Girl Scout and sold all the cookies and I was the youth group leader and involved in the church and I always was engaged in student government. Uh, I was in a volunteer for the Democratic Party. I mean, I was that girl. Like, okay, <laughs> that makes sense it, though. Right, it just is, which is funny because my parents, though very value focused and take care of your neighbors, uh, they were not political at all, at all, at all. So it wasn't like I was sitting at the dinner table talking politics. Uh, they must have thought, like, my goodness, where did we get this kid from? <laughs> so let me ask you about that, though, because I think this is important when we think about our kids. And what was it? Was it that the you liked joining? Did you have anybody that you had as a role model? Um, what was it that helped you? reach for something that you weren't necessarily seeing at home? That's so interesting. Well, what I was getting at home, and I know this is a blessing that not everybody gets. So I, I want to f- start off with that. I had two parents who were very clear that I could do whatever I wanted to do and that I like I had their backup and they were really encouraging of engagement. Uh, and so I'm that is a that is a real blessing and not everybody has that. And I know that. Um, so that's why like, I was like, that's sometimes Emily's list is that replacement, right? <laughs> I work for an organization that sometimes is the replacement for the family not backing you up. Uh, so that was part of it. And then the, the other part is there was something that, I don't know if it was the old, the oldest child looking for a little bit of attention, you know, you've got whatever, you know, you know, weird thinking that goes into this. I just felt really driven 
to make change. I, I felt like I had to do something to make the world better, whatever it was. And I didn't necessarily know. I, I got started uh, around the issue of, and this is going to sound crazy now because for younger listeners, but this was in the eighties. Uh, and I was, a, I was, I was a kid, but we, we were still taught, we were still in the cold war. Oh yeah. Uh, and I was really super concerned about uh, nuclear weapons, like really concerned. This was, um, for us, what the climate crisis is, I think for today's kids. I think that's such a good point. I hadn't thought about it, but that is exactly what it is because you realize that one bad day could end everything. Um, whereas the climate crisis is we're having bad days every day. And we're just, right. it's, like a, it's like a slower version of ending everything, but it's ending everything, I fear. Um, yeah, it, so we can that, change this now. That sense of there's this gigantic thing that puts all of us at risk. And how can we mobilize for change? Totally. Oh my gosh, that's such a good point. You know, and that was that was my fact. And I also happened to live, you know, I was growing up in Montana, and Montana is home to uh, the, at that time 200 Minuteman missiles, probably all of which were pointed to the Soviet Union in the 80s, as was the case of that time period, which is hard to imagine which also meant that there were missiles pointed to Montana to knock out all the missiles that were pointed. So I really, it was also a very purely like, I don't want my family to get blown this up. Felt this felt real to you. It was a, app entirely real. You could see the missile silos, like you knew where they were. Well, not all of them. You didn't yeah, it wasn't an abstraction. No, you're like, as soon as I remember, I remember one day driving, I wasn't driving, dad was driving and I was like, hey, what is that? Is that like an oil thing? <laughs> and my dad literally said, um, no, that's a missile silo. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh my God. <laughs> so that was it. That was the beginning of my you know, energy to, to start getting engaged. So with that kind of motivation to engage, you went on to join, to step up to um, campaign, to get involved in organizations. We have a whole lot of young people now who are inspired to engage. We have a lot of women at all stages of maturity who carry this kind of anxiety about our world and a desire to make it better. But like you said, not everybody has that foundation of a family who says, you can do it and we believe in you. But that Emily's List does that? So we talk do that. to me about how, how do you help get that, who, who gets that message and how do you give it to them? You know, it's, you know, and it is exactly why Emily's List started 35 years ago uh, was because there weren't that many women running. And when they were running, they weren't getting the support of the establishment, uh, both party or resources. And our, you know, initial journey was to get the financial resources. But the truth is, is there weren't that many women running. So we had to get more women. Now, I was not there at the time of the beginning. And I stand upon the shoulders of our founder, Ellen Malcolm, uh, who really, truly is, in my mind, a great entrepreneur. Just to start Emily's List from scratch in her kitchen, basically, is incredible. I, I, in, completely, completely. Uh, 
so what we do and what I think is really important, and we talk about this in the book, is to guide uh, women through a little bit of a process of thinking through where they can make the best change. Where is your passion? Where is your energy? And do you have uh, the time and the ability to take on whatever it is you want to take on? Because you do have to be realistic. I mean, I will say we're not trying to be like, you can all save the world, but you can, (laughs) but here's the thing. You can take a piece of it and maybe that's running for office or maybe that's in your very own work place where you go after that next promotion because we need more women's leadership across the board. And the reason that is so important is that our perspectives, we believe, and I think proves out over and over again, uh, our perspectives uh, balance out and bring the entire community into the discussion. So whether that's in a corporation or that is at a United States Senate committee hearing, (laughs) uh, it's so critical. And and so we just walk through that uh, because the one thing I'll also say, particularly about running for office, about anything though, Unless you really are a rocket scientist trying to get to the moon, which mm-hmm. seems like a really hard thing to do to me, but it I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I just not rocket science. Uh, most <laughs> of the work that we are all doing, we can learn the tactics of it. We can learn this. There are skills to be taught, but we can learn it. It's just having the drive to take the step to do it. And that's what we want everybody to think about as they look at making that next step in their lives and career. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is Stephanie Shriok. She's the president of Emily's List and author of the new book, Run to Win, Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing the World. So, Stephanie, part of what you were saying just now is so, it's a common theme for women in business too, which is that um, if your heart's in the right place and you're eager to work hard, and you have a vision of what you want to do, you don't have to know everything when you begin. Right? Exactly. This is exactly. True. And how much academic yeah. research do we know, sisters <laughs> that are like the women, if you don't have 100% of the job description, <laughs> you don't go for the job and like, stop doing that. <laughs> okay. So I want to knock off a couple of things. Um, so I'm gathering things like a degree in political science, history, or law. Useful, but not necessary. Not, not at all. Not at all. That's so, true. As Lovel, a, lovely to have if you're a lawyer, but we need some nurses and teachers. Why <laughs> and is it women? Why is it that those perspectives are so important? Is it because they're just skills that they have that are transferable, or is their specific life experience important? I mean, the, I think the life experience is critical, in particularly in politics and public service. What we're trying to do here is to bring people together, because it's all about people, uh, and bring them together to find policies that are going to make the community better. And if you don't have the diversity of life perspectives, then you're going to miss complete aspects of the community need. And so that is why we actually do need truly diverse perspectives. That's in professions, that's in race, 
That's a lot more women, I would argue, at least 50% of the governing tables in this country, at least. I mean, we are over 50% of the population Last women, so yeah. you know, <laughs> we, we should at least have that. Uh, but it really is about um, bringing in your own life experience, because the other thing that does is it is relatable to others. Like, it's not like you're, everybody thinks they have a unique life experience. And we do, to a certain extent, have a unique experience. But there is something in my own story, my own life experience that relates to you, Laura, and relates to, of course, to millions of others. And so if we're willing to talk about, and that's the other thing women have got to do, we've got to be willing to talk about our own story, our own life experience. It will touch the hearts of others and bring people together. And that's the power of the leadership women can bring. So part of what I'm hearing and what you're talking about of how we need all these different perspectives, part of that is about when our elected officials come together to govern and that we want the dialogue in those rooms to be diverse. At the same time, those each of those people in that room, they're representing hundreds and thousands, if not millions of other people. We start with our own experience, but how can candidates learn um, to carry with them the concerns of all the people they represent? Well, and I think it starts with, if you're willing as a candidate to, to share your story, that is the beginning of building trust with your voters and building trust. If you're willing to open up, then they'll open up then all of a sudden you've got a dialogue and you're understand you're learning more and more first about the voters and then ultimately about your constituents but it's about a layer of trust that you're building now doesn't that sound like something that we do in our daily lives in our workplaces too and especially as women absolutely critical so in that we both have to make ourselves vulnerable by making ourselves visible and open to others. But at the same time, it sounds like there's some listening to be done. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's easier uh, for others to share their stories if you're a little bit vulnerable, which can be very hard for women in this culture, right? Because the other piece, and we talk a little bit about how this is changing, but th this is a culture, all of our workplaces, for the most part, are really, set up by men. They've been <laughs> designed by men. They've been around. Yes. Some of them, for, that's just the way it is for 250 years in this country. Uh, men have driven uh, the train, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And now we're like, okay, great, but we need to change this a little bit. Uh, and this is part of the process of, of, of changing it. So when we talk about being visible that way, making ourselves available and vulnerable, um, I think something that immediately follows, at least in my mind, is then how do I put on a suit of armor? How do I protect myself? Do I have to be perfect? Which we know is something that a lot of women labor under and in fact get constrained by. Talk to That's me so about authenticity and vulnerability and also how that also can lead to strength. It, oh my goodness. Then there's so many pieces of that, right? We, in, and in the book, we do talk about, you know, the importance of telling your authentic story, which is just opening yourself up on the other and making yourself vulnerable. 
Which again, in a culture where there's a little bit of a sense still that women are held to higher standards. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to say that's not the case, but it is. So, so let's just, so let's is. just be, let's just be honest about it. Uh, but we just keep pushing through that. And that's the deal. But in the same process, you got to grow a thicker skin. You got to grow that thicker skin, which is another part of what we talk about in the book. So while we're asking, we're sort of asking you to what sounds like the impossible, which is to open yourself up and grow a thicker skin at the same time. (laughs) I know it sounds a little bit crazy, but it's completely doable. And I look at, uh, you always go back to this wonderful new congresswoman who came in in 2018, Lauren Underwood. Uh, She's the youngest African-American woman ever to be elected to the United States House of Representatives. She's a nurse and a woman who worked in the Obama administration in public health. Uh, she has a pre-existing condition, so she has a very strong personal story, but also real-life public policy uh, uh, background. She had no interest in running for office until after the 2016 election, uh, when the shock of Hillary Clinton not winning uh, struck her as it did so many women across the country. And she still wasn't really interested in running until... Uh, the Republican congressman that was representing her uh, made a promise in a town hall to protect pre-existing conditions. And then he went to the U.S. House and voted against the bill to protect pre-existing conditions. And Lauren's like, nope, that's it. That was sort of the moment, right, of her, of her stepping through. And the way she did it, and she had to get through a six-way primary first, in a district that nobody thought was in play to begin with. Uh, It was a very Republican district. Uh, And again, it was a fairly demographically white district, but Lauren just went out there and she told her story and then folks were willing to share their story. And all of a sudden the conversations about the need for quality healthcare drove that election because she was willing to open up but don't think it wasn't hard for her as a black woman in a district like that. She had to fight and fight and fight to break through to, for folks to think she was viable. And she did it. She did it. And she's still today, even as a Congresswoman is the, the nicest, most, most authentic <laughs> woman. She's fabulous, but she's also tough as nails. It sounds, can be both. Right. Well, a lot of women, I think, a lot of people, but especially a lot, almost all the women I know, it, these things exist in companionship of um, an openness, an ability to tap into a kind of empathy and a sympathy, um, but at the same time, a core strength that needs to be there. And it sounds like those are two essential character traits that, need, that are essential in leadership roles, never mind in politics. Yeah, completely. And I, it's something that I've had to learn myself along the way. You know, I'm not someone who has run for office, but I have been behind a lot of, lot of candidates. And, and when I took over Emily's list, which by the way, to our earlier conversation of, um, 
almost not doing it because I didn't think I had 100% of the job description. That was me, by the way, everybody. <laughs> that was, I was like, I can't do this job. It's too big. Uh, and finally I had enough uh, friends and, and counterparts were like, you can do this. You can learn the things you don't know. Uh, and so I had to go through the process myself. Like, I, I really did. And, and in that I had to learn how to start talking about my story and, and I'll be honest, a part of my process was like, I don't know what my story is. So it wasn't I even the question of whether or not you wanted to share it or people wanted to hear it. It was, do I understand it? That's right. That's right. You know, because if you don't really think about it and for, for some, I mean, it varies. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> like I said, I, I grew up in a middle-class white family with the privilege that comes with that in Butte, Montana. And so I was like, oh, it's like, I might, I might as well have a white picket fence for guy was brown, <laughs> but it was like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, I, we were doing, uh, my parents were both college educated, you know, I, I, but you realize there's more to it than that. And you've got to think through how you fit in society. And you do that by figuring out your story. Uh, because it is going to be relatable to so many others. And it allows, again, the willingness for others to open up to you. And then you can lead. It's really hard to lead if you're not willing to share, in my opinion, at least in my experience. Uh, you, you just can't, you can't build the loyalty that needs to come with it. It also sounds that if you don't know your own story, you won't know why you're doing this in the first place. I know, and then how do you carry the vision for yourself and everyone you're asking to join in with you? That, that's right. I mean, there's a certain set of values that drive us all. And sometimes we just have to sit back and think like, what, what are those? And what are the most important? And what's, what's going to keep me going? What's going to keep that fire in my belly going, right? What is it? Because it's, it's not going to be this, the, like the day-to-day -day work of it. It's going to be something else that's driving you, whether you're you know, working at an organization or not. Right. And then that needs to also drive all the other people that are joining in with you. One of the things that we tapped into was how women may not see themselves as candidates, that, um, but so many more women are capable of being great civil servants and really could be really successful, helping all of us in a much bigger way. There's also questions that we have to ask ourselves, though, to make sure we're ready to do this and it's the right time in our lives without getting held back by the things that are easily changed. So talk to me about what are the questions we, women should ask before they're stepping into really these kind of next level leadership roles if they wanna be successful. Absolutely. Um, and I'm so glad it's, it's staying away from those things that are fixable, right? right. What are the core questions? Uh, and the core questions really become, you know, do you have the passion to take this next step? You know, whatever that step is, uh, it's going to take more work. It's going to take time to learn. Are you willing to learn? That is a big one. Are you willing to learn new things? <laughs> and I, and I have found that that actually is pretty easy for women. I, I don't know. I can't speak about men, but a lot of women want to learn new things all the time, often because they want to be perfect students. That's a whole nother <laughs> challenge. You do not need to be a perfect student, everybody, but I know a lot of you want to be, I know how this is. I too, I have that <laughs> inside. Uh, 
but it is the passion, uh, the values. And then also you just have to have sort of a really realistic conversation about, do you have the time? And I mean, like real time, like if you're going to run for office, it's going to take a lot of time and you've got to think through particularly women. I mean, I wish I could wave a magic wand and get the, the housework and the child, all of the child care work um, balanced out. It's not, we know that um, it's better than it used to be, but it's far from perfect. So you got to think that through and, and we're willing to have conversations. And the good news is we have so many role models now yes. who have done it in so many different ways. Uh, I remember talking to a potential candidate uh, in Wisconsin, we were trying to get her to run for Congress and she was in the legislature. She had little ones at home and everybody wanted her to run. This was not just like Emily's list pushing her. I mean, Nancy Pelosi wanted her to run. Steny Hoyer, everybody was on board on this one. That's a persuasive um, group. That's a, right. We, it was during the Obama era. The president wanted her to run. <laughs> we were like on it. We're like, you know, harassing her with phone calls and, 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 and she wouldn't say yes. She wouldn't say, yeah. I'm like, oh my God, what, what are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? Like, why are you not saying yes? And I get on the phone. I was like, okay, run me through your concerns. And they were all these tactical concerns. I don't know if I can raise the money for this. I don't know if I'm going to get the staff together. I was like, stop. Those are all completely manageable. We'll figure it out. That, right. That's, we can do that. What is really at the core of your concern? And for her, it was, what if I win and I have to deal with the kid? What do I do with the kids? That's a real question. That's a real question. That is a really good question. And I said, fair question. I don't have kids, so I'm not even going to attempt to. I have answers, but I'll tell <laughs> you what. I'm going to put you on the phone with two women who have done it two different ways. I'm going to put you on the phone with Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's in Congress, whose kids stay in Florida. And I'm going to put you on the phone with Kirsten Gillibrand, whose kids came to D.C., and who two had a child, models. right, two different models. And you all can think about, you can literally talk through this. And if you decide to come, we can talk school. I mean, Emily's List will talk school districts and neighborhoods and where to go. And you want to do private or public schools. We're, we have all these conversations. And what, within 30 minutes, she called me back. She's like, I'm in. That's okay. all she needed. Like, it's huge. That's, we need the answers to our entire lives typically, and not just one thing. And I, in my experience, that's much the difference between women and men making the decision. <laughs> yes, but there's also a few other things in there that seem potent, which is one is she needed to know that this could be solved. She needed yes. to see that there were pathways to it, but that you also going back to kind of business practices, it sounds like you set her up with a little mentorship. Oh, incredibly important. And that's the thing. We are in a place, thankfully, I mean, I can't imagine what 40 years ago was like, but we're in a place now where there are examples of every kind of uh, leadership. And we have to start lifting that up. There is not one kind of women's leadership in this country and one model. There's so many different kinds and that's what's so impressive. And we need to uplift those and highlight them so more and more women can see themselves 
as leaders, just because they don't all match Hillary Clinton. <laughs> it's just, just like, if you're not just, and then you can't, you can't run. I'm like, whoa, 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 wait, different yeah, mod, different situation here. Or Nancy Pelosi, of, which is a lot of different dimensions to what are ro the role models that we now have. Completely, you completely. And then also when we're talking about, you know, black women and Latinas and Asian American women, like what do those models look like? And the good news again is that they're there uh, and we can connect the coaching of it just as it's helpful in all of our work. You know, it's helpful in my work that I've got a group of women and a, and I will be honest, a few good men <laughs> who are, are people that I can turn to when I have questions about how to proceed as a leader of a nationwide organization. So it sounds like um, we talk often in business about this concept of mentorship, the people that are going to help us grow, help us address our fears, learn what we need to learn, and sponsorship, the people who are going to tee us up for the next opportunity. And it sounds like Emily's List is actively doing both things, yes? Absolutely, absolutely, when it comes to, and we need to. You know, if this were easy, we'd have an equal number of women and men. We'd have five <laughs> women presidents already. This is not, it's still not easy uh, in American politics. And it's frankly, we would have half of the CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies. Let's just be blunt. Right. Like, if this were easy, this would have equaled out already. It's not. We have to be intentional about this work and about supporting women and particularly women of color as they rise up through the ranks of our society and leadership. We have to do it. So speaking about being intentional and these different components that we need in many ways to replicate the, the deep system that has propelled men into leadership roles throughout history. Um, one organization that you wrote about in the book that I just thought was so in awesome is Vote Mama. Can you tell me about it? How is it founded and what does it aim to achieve? Yeah, she, Vote Mama is a uh, fairly new now organization that was started by uh, a woman in New York, um, uh, um, whose name I just, I'm so sorry, um, Luba. Uh, who lost a congressional race. She came out of sort of no nowhere in this congressional race, came very close to winning in New York's second congressional district, uh, and then didn't, uh, didn't quite make it. But during her race, she was struggling paying for childcare, which is a super real concern for all of the candidates. And she went to the Federal Election Commission with the backing of a number of other uh, people. And, and the, so the Federal Election Commission is the entity in the, in the government that uh, makes decisions about how campaigns are funded. So mm -hmm. maybe not everybody knows what that is, but that's, that's where she went. And they made a ruling that you could use campaign resources to pay for childcare. Now, I had to say, that sounds like pretty simple, right? Right. I mean, it sounds so simple, so obvious. Like, why wouldn't that just be the case? 2018. Right. It didn't happen until 2018. Oh my God. Right? It's because somebody like uh, like Luba came up and said, we got to do this. Uh, and thank gosh she did. So afterward, um, she lost, but she wanted to do something to make sure that women uh, mothers uh, had additional support, and she started uh, the organization Vote Mama 
to get additional support around our mothers, particularly with younger children, because um, that's, a, you know, not saying that mothers with older children is easy, but mothers with younger children really can be a handful. And, um, that's and also that's, now. in many ways, the beginning of the professional pipeline. We know that in business, when women are in that stage of life where we start and build families, our careers can be quite vulnerable if we don't have systems that support us, never mind politics. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, and you're judged by it. I mean, that's the other thing in politics. Uh, and, and I'm telling you, you can get through this and voters will, will get through it as well. But women will get asked, what are you going to do with your children if you win? Like that question that that potential <laughs> candidate asked is actually going to get asked to you by voters. Or if you don't have children, why don't why you? Don't you? <laughs> right. What's wrong with you? Right. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> so that's why we're here. We're, we're your, we are your sisterhood. That's going to back you up and get you through those long nights. And <laughs> we had a woman, uh, she's awesome running for the U S Senate. And she had two, two young, uh, kids, one in elementary school and more like a running around toddler. And <laughs> she had this great announcement. This was in Georgia years ago. And she had this awesome announcement to her. Like it was going so well. And I called her up. So she, she was running for Senate. And I was like, ah, oh, it's so good. The press is great. How's the bus tour going? And she's like, it's a disaster, Stephanie. It's a total disaster. I was like, what do you mean? What's, what do you mean? What happened? I'm freaking. And she goes, well, I woke up this morning after running for a day and my son said, so are we done running for the Senate? Oh, right. I mean, how many like pull the dagger out of your, <laughs> uh, and I was like, okay, anything else? And she's like, yes, the press thinks I'm a terrible mother. I said, well, how is that possible? What did you do? My little girl runs around and she takes her dress and she whips it over her head and she's little. She's like, and I was like, okay. I think we've got answers here. One, good news. School's going to start soon. So your son's <laughs> going to be back in school. Let's go with that. And two, invest in leggings. <laughs> yeah, right. See, problems that can be solved. We can solve these problems. <laughs> For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Stephanie Shriak. She's the president of Emily's List and author of the new book, Run to Win. Lessons in Leadership for Women Changing in the World. So Stephanie, as you were talking about, you know, the way we get judged, um, that motherhood, how we parent, if we parent, if we don't parent is so fraught. There's another area that's pretty darn fraught for women and it's money. Yeah. Talking about money, asking for money, despite how well women historically manage money. So we know that whether you are, going to lead a not-for-profit. You know, I work in higher ed. Fundraising is an important part of what I Absolutely. do. It is essential to a candidate. Yes. And often something I would imagine new candidates have not done before. How do you help them wrap their heads around it? And um, both the big framework for how you approach it and also basic steps that can help you do it better. It's, it's, and it's often the one thing that folks are most scared about, right? And that's probably the case in academia too, I would imagine, when you get into an academic setting and all of a sudden you're looked and said, you have to raise money now. Right. And, and it's for a few reasons, because one, it's a tremendous responsibility mm -hmm. and that, you know, it's not just 
your salary and other people's salary, but quite importantly, it's the mission you're serving. That's it's right. Not, this isn't about profit. This is about purpose. Correct. And I feel like asking for money is like some other areas of our lives where we're very delicate about it. We speak in euphemisms. We don't speak directly. We don't teach each other how to do it. And as a result, it makes it that much more frightening. Yes. And it's not, let's let you, this is not a scary thing. Now I actually uh, became up uh, in the Democratic Party as a fundraiser. So <laughs> this is this is my specialty. I might be a generalist in a lot of other things, but I am a specialist in fundraising. And I've talked to many, many candidates and it's starting with this. Like you are asking for an investment in the future of your community. Like just get over the thought that it is for you because it's actually not. It's not like it's going in your pocket. It's not going. In <laughs> fact, it's not going in your pocket. <laughs> right. uh, it's going to pay for all of the aspects of your startup business <laughs> called the right. campaign, right? right? Like back to the it's idea your, that this yeah. is like entrepreneurship. This and is like your venture capital you got to find. Exactly. Yeah. So you got to go do it and you got to ask for it and you've got to make the case. And you're going to have to ask a lot of people because there's limits, unlike venture capital where you could get one big investment. <laughs> uh, you've one got, person you're have, can't give you. No, it's not. I know. I think some people think that is the case. That is not the case. There, There is uh, very rarely is that the case, I should say, uh, in American politics. And so you have to ask your friends, your family, and then you, because they're the easiest and people are most scared about that. I'm like, if you can't ask your family, then you got, we got to get over this. Like, because I love that you point that out. There. You see the friends and family fundraising, it's often talked about as um, you've got to at least get them to buy into your idea. But That's I right. love that you're peeling it back to say, it's not just that you want the affirmation that they support you. It sounds like what it really is, is how do you learn to ask? That's right. <laughs> like, all it's good practice. Like if you got a call, okay, let's face it. We all asked our parents for money at some point in time. So just channel that. Right. <laughs> but like there was a, a note in the book that Amy Klobuchar even called her ex-boyfriends. All of them. She called all of them and they all gave <laughs> according to her. And <laughs> I, 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 knowing Amy, I think that's probably true. That is probably true. <laughs> but you seriously, just, and you have to be blunt about the ask. That's the other thing we make so many mistakes about is like, oh, I'm really hoping you're con you'll consider doing something for my campaign. That's not an ask. Like an ask is uh, I am running for city council and I'm doing this because I want to slow down the development of Al Old Town Alexandria. Uh, so I'm asking for your support. Can I count on you to make a hundred dollar contribution to my campaign? So that's very specific. Yes. And actionable. You know, yes. somebody's asked then. Right. And also let them like give them an ask that they can respond to. That's the other thing we forget to do. And then here's the trick. Let them respond. Let okay. them answer the question so often we'll be like will you you know you know can i count on you or will you make a one thousand dollar contribution to my campaign or something like that whatever you could do would be really really helpful you just destroyed your ask and you gave them an out before you let them answer so in other words you have to manage your own anxiety by 
first having the courage to ask and yeah. then having the self-control to keep your mouth shut? Yes. <laughs> and that might long. be the harder part. <laughs> it I, is have a, I have a seven second rule, which is an eternity of silence. <laughs> it's like, an it's a long time when you're talking about planks yeah. and waiting in silence. Exactly. True and true, by the way. And so I can't, I'm a counter. So I'm just like, I will ask and I'll, I'll just like, in my head I'll like you know <laughs> uh, my colleague Emily Kane who is our executive director of Emily's List and is a, a former legislator in Maine and a two-time congressional candidate she drinks water and th this is a good way to do it too is make the ask and then grab the glass of waters I'm doing oh, right so now you're giving yourself like a little theatrical moment to yep. kill a few seconds Yep. buy a little time without just staring them down, Correct. but it's also waiting for them to respond. Now I'd imagine part of what, imagine, I live this all the time. Part yeah. of what we're worried about is it's very frightening to ask and then wait to hear no. Yeah, but so rarely are they gonna say no. They might, because they too now, now you've got, you've got them on the spot and they're gonna say something. They might say, just say yes, that'd be great. And often they do. Uh, they may go, oh, I'm not sure I can do that much. Let me think about it. Now you're in a negotiation. Do not think that is an answer. That you got to think, okay, that's a negotiation. Right, like if you were uh, asking for salary, that's not an answer. Correct. You're, you're waiting. Exactly. It's a like stage an, of a process. Yes, and just like an ask is an ask is an ask. Like whatever aspect of your life, an ask is an ask. Make it clear so you can get a response. And then if it's not a clear response, then you've got to counter with another ask. <laughs> okay, so I want to back up for a second because it's so frightening for so many of us to think about doing this. And you wrote in the book, like, what's the worst thing that could happen? Right. They say no. Which right. in my mind is just a not now. <laughs> Which is why you're good at what you do. But it's like, as a reminder, I'll call you back later. Don't nobody worry. died from asking for money, right? No. no, that is not, as far as I know, so I far. have not had that fact checked, but I am almost certain that has not happened. <laughs> um, so we do need to be brave, willing, but there's also something about when is it what, how do you till the soil to get ready for this how you, or prep the runway? Um, how much of a, do you need to be, have a relationship intact before that you ask? What's the, you know, the warm up here? For the individual donor or pers prospective donor? Yeah. I mean, it just, it sort of depends on what layer. And we talk about uh, the circles of, of support a lot and, you know, your family knows you, so that's easier, sometimes harder because they know you, but just like good practice, good practice. <laughs> Friends know you. Uh, then you're talking to folks that would have some sort of interest in your candidacy uh, based on shared beliefs. You know, so you've got, you know, so you have to think about why would this person be intrigued, you know? So if you're a Democrat, you're probably not calling off of a a straight up Republican list of donors who you don't know. <laughs> right. Now so, that doesn't mean you're not calling Republicans that you do know who right. might invest in you because of a personal relationship. 
but you're looking for some connective tissue of why there'd be an interest. Uh, and, and so when you're a candidate, it's often about your plans and, and what's going on in the community. So it sounds like something that's consistent between all of those groups as each one can be slightly different, not unlike when we're negotiating for salary, that that's right. The person we're in dialogue, we share some, there's some shared interest there. There's some, yes. some shared value, some shared concern, and we're bringing each other together in that conversation, hopefully to Completely. fuel something bigger than either one of us. Right. That's exactly right. And that's for any, any kind of ask. Yeah, I think about uh, the times where I have, I said this very funny story. But again, a moment where I still had to <laughs> convince myself I should do something uh, early on in my career. And I had just been the campaign manager for John Tester, who's now a United States Senator. He had won and he was then going to look for a chief of staff. I hadn't even crossed my mind to put my hat in the ring for that. Had not even, hadn't even dawned on me that that would be something I'd do. And then a friend on the campaign said, you should do it. And I sat down with him. And I laid out my case that I should be his chief of staff. And he hadn't thought about it either until I said it. And then he was like, well, that makes total sense. So if you don't make the ask, the other person may be maybe not ever be thinking about it. That's why we have to be brave and take the risk. And it's from that that we then create a whole cycle of chain. That's exactly right. Oh, Stephanie, this is also encouraging and illuminating. If people want to learn more about how to get involved with EMILY's List, if they want to run or they just want to support the organization, where can they go? Well, absolutely go to emilyslist.org and uh, take a look at the organization. There's also a training center on our website that gives a whole set of tools for you from finance plans and running call times and learning how to ask as well as like, what does a cash flow look like? It's almost like a little business. It's like a little <laughs> mini campaign business school uh, right there. So check us out anytime. Uh, sign up for our Run to Win program at Emily's List as well uh, to keep tabs. And then and check out the book. I mean, Run to Win, uh, Christina Reynolds, my co-writer, and I have had a lot of personal experiences in democratic politics. And you will be so inspired by so many of the stories of brave women from all backgrounds stepping up to make change in their communities. And I'll tell you what, you'll be ready to do the same. Yeah, and it includes a delightful foreword from Vice from President Vice President Kamala Harris. I got goosebumps. <laughs> I know. I'm so excited I every time I think of it. Stephanie, you've been such a delight. Thank you, not just for joining us, but for the extraordinary work you're doing out there on behalf of all of us. Thank you so much. And we ought to just keep doing it together. And thank you for what you're doing. Oh, um, and we need more women to run. So particularly from the business community. So don't In Indeed. So thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXMBusiness. I'm at Laura Zarrow. And new episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern. Our full catalog of past shows are available wherever you get your podcasts. Just search on Laura Zarrow and Women at Work to find us and be sure to follow us. I'd love to thank my producer, as always, Patty All, sound engineer, 
Chris Tukes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everyone. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 